If you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to John 4, verse 19. John chapter 4, verse 19. Last week, we looked at the first part of this this chapter as Jesus uh, encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, Jesus refers to himself as, as living water. As he encounters this woman, engages her in conversation. We looked at that as um, in the backdrop of the Old Testament, Jeremiah 2.13, forsaking the, um, the living waters of God for uh, hewing out cisterns that won't hold water. And so we thought primarily about being satisfied in the Lord, and that's an aspect of worship. But we're going to go even further than that today as we get to this uh, uh, passage that is widely known. Whenever you think about worship in the New Testament, John chapter 4 is probably one of those chapters that immediately comes to your mind. And so we're going to look at that um, today in this text. So it's John chapter 4, starting in verse 19. So this is after Jesus... Uh, tells the woman in verse 16 to go and to call her husband. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, that's right, you don't. You've had five and the one that you're living with now is not your husband. And then verse 19 is her response. The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit And in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto Him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When He is come, He will teach us all things. Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am He. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith unto the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? When they went out of the city, I'm sorry, then they went out of the city and came unto him. And, and so we see we're not finished with this woman and, and her witness here to the people in the city, but we see as this story or this encounter um, unfolds, uh, it begins at the beginning of the chapter. This lady comes around the sixth hour, around noon, to the well to get water. She was uh, probably, after we get kind of the rest of her story, probably trying to avoid interaction with other people. She was a woman who was known as an immoral woman. She was a Samaritan, and she finds this Jew sitting on a well, uh, and that's the same well she's going to get water out of, and he asks her for a drink. 
That's strange to her. She even asked, why are you talking to me? That's kind of odd for her to do that. Then Jesus begins to talk about himself as the gift of God. And if she were to know, if she did know the gift of God who was there, if if she would just ask him, he could give her water and the water would satisfy her thirst. She would not thirst anymore. It, it, got, it went from being kind of odd to real strange. Then she says, Sir, give me of this water. And Jesus says, Go and get your husband. Odd, strange, to awkward. What do I do now? I don't have a husband. And he says, I know that already. You've had five. And the man you're living with right now is not your husband. Creepy. Right? Personal. Very, very personal. Here's this Jew that doesn't usually talk to Samaritans who's talking to me. He's referring to himself as living water. When I ask him for it, he tells me to go get my husband. When I try to just give a a general answer that's not necessarily a lie. He calls me on the carpet and knows things about me that maybe no one else knows. And so she says, after Jesus reveals something about her that he should have never known, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And so then she engages him with a question. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, we'll talk about this in a, in a little bit, but this was an ongoing debate with uh, the Jews and the Samaritans. Where, where should worship take place? What's the right location? She's asking Jesus to settle this age-old debate. But Jesus takes this debate, and while he does give a really quick answer, he just moves directly to the heart of what's going on here. And, and, and the heart of the, the question really is, what is acceptable worship to God? And so this morning, we want to look at, and we may end up spending a couple of Sundays in this passage. It's a passage that is, that is just, it's rich, and it's a passage that um, I think that we, we must understand as we think about what does it mean to worship God? What's the kind of worship that God receives? What's the kind of worship that God rejects? And all of the things that fall in between. And so the title of the message this morning is is The Heart of Worship. The Heart of Worship. Now, in order for us to get an accurate understanding, I think of what's being said with this exchange, we need to understand the backdrop. and, And you'll understand it. You just need to be reminded of the backdrop of what worship looks like in this world that Jesus and the Samaritan woman are in. Um, If you could summarize the Old Testament, we could do it in a couple of different ways. One way that would be fitting would be that the Old Testament gives us a history of worship disorders. It's a history of worship disorders. They go from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is one of those passages that um, echoes throughout Scripture. It's brought up again in the New Testament. It's a passage you'll 
immediately, if you don't already know what it is, you'll immediately recognize. Deuteronomy chapter 6, when Moses is retelling the law, um, he gives this command, this, this statement. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. This is the heart of worship right here. Moses, and then later Jesus would reiterate this, but if you think about what it means to worship God and you reduce it down to its simplest possible form, it's this. Love God with your entire inner man. Now the very next thing in this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is, and, and store up these words in your heart. Okay, so there's some content that goes along with it. But it's, it's love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And so this is something that God was calling his people to from the very beginning. Now, it's, you know this, it's, it's interesting to go back and kind of trace this, but in Exodus, God had given meticulous instructions on, on how to build and set up the tabernacle and, and how worship was to be carried out. He was very precise. Make this out of this kind of wood and this curtain out of this kind of material and it's this long and no longer or no shorter and it's here and then this needs to be this way and so forth and so on and so that there was, there was no mistakes as to what this was supposed to look like and how it was supposed to function. But what we see as we make our way through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, this is really what Jesus' uh, repeated criticism of the Pharisees was all about. Israel, like many do today and just in different ways, got so caught up in the meticulous details of the form of worship that it became an entirely outward expression that was void of any kind of love or heart for God. Um, the worship of God became a checklist of duties rather than an expression of love. Bring this animal that looks this way at this time to this person who's wearing this thing and they'll cleanse it this way and take it into this room and sacrifice it this way and so forth and so on. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with what God prescribed, but God was not prescribing a series of steps that if they were done just for the sake of doing them would be pleasing to Him. God was prescribing a way that the people, out of a heart of love for Him, could please Him if they were to do these things. But, as we said, you go through the Old Testament, these words aren't there, but this is exactly what happened. 
Uh, it just became a checklist of duties. There was no love. There was no reverence. By the time Jesus gets to the temple, and we, we saw it earlier in John, and he cleanses the temple, we find out that the place where God was to be worshipped became a den of thieves. It became an, it became an opportunity. Okay? These things have to be just so. And since they have to be just so, the temple tax has to be paid in this currency. Since this is the case, we will make some big money making sure these people are honoring the Lord the way He told them to do it. So instead of this is how we'll love God, it's this is how we'll get rich. We've got them. Okay? But here's the deal with this, and, and this is the way it works with all of us. You know, that, you know the way this works. People eventually get really bored with checklists. And when your heart gets bored with God, your desires and affections will gravitate towards something else. You want to know what happened with the Old Testament um, worship? That was just it. They got bored with it. They had it down. They had it down. Jesus criticizes the Pharisees and says, you're, you're even tithing of mint and cumin. You're giving a tenth of what you get out of your herbal garden. But what did you leave off? Love and mercy. You should have done both, he said. He doesn't criticize them for doing the form. He criticizes the form without the heart. You should have done both, he says. But when your heart gets bored with God, you're going to get sucked into something else. You're going to be drawn into something else. James talks about this in James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot tempt with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away. Now, it's important to remember that the word tempted here is tested, proved. This has everything to do with worship. Every man is proved. His outward profession is proved when the pressure's on here. Every man is proved or tempted, verse 14, when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. That is, he's drawn away of his own desire, his own affection, his own heart, and he's enticed. And when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth Death. James is describing here this heart that gets bored with God and gets drawn away by other temptations in an affectionate way. The desires go after something else. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 gives us a name for this. Um, and it's, uh, it's found in other passages besides Colossians, but Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Which is idolatry. The, the drifting heart, 
the heart that drifts from a love for God toward other things. You could add to the list in Colossians chapter 3. Is a heart that is pursuing worship, but it is rather than uh, cultivating or expressing love for God, it's a heart that's drawn away with love for something else over and above God. And that's what God calls idolatry. Again, if you were to, you could summarize what's going on in the Old Testament as a people who kept loving other things more than God. Yeah, they just couldn't quit it. They would, they would try to find their security in, in, in the pagan nations instead of God. They wanted to be like them. Why? Because they loved what they had more than they loved God. We could think about idolatry the same way we thought about the cisterns last week. What does it mean? Well, it means that you forsake the living God for a broken cistern. It means that you turn away from trying to find your satisfaction in the Lord to trying to find your satisfaction in some other place or in some other avenue. And here's the danger. The danger with idolatry is that you can go through all the outward motions and all the outward forms of worshiping God while you are inwardly rejecting God and embracing an idol. That's kind of scary, isn't it? In other words, if you were to see someone who has set up an idol in their heart, you'd never know it by looking at them, particularly in a church service. They look just like everybody else. They've come, they've sat, perhaps they sing very well, they may be taking notes, and they might be able to have a good discussion about the message. All the outward things... The problem that Israel had and the problem that we all have in and of ourselves is that worshiping God, bringing God worship that that is acceptable and pleasing to Him begins with a heart that loves Him. It's not about outward form. It's about an inward affection. And unless there's that inward affection, okay, remember we, we said every time we talk about worship, it's, it's a value statement. Worthship. We worship you. We exalt you in our hearts and in our minds. And without that, the form is nothing. The form is nothing. How do we know that? We'll turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, this is the Lord here speaking to His people compares them here to Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. 
Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? Now think about that question. Why are you bringing me these sacrifices, God says? And what's the answer? Well, at face value, the answer is because you told us to. This is what you prescribed. You told us that if we wanted to worship you in an acceptable way, first in the tabernacle and then in your blessings on the temple, we were to worship you through animal sacrifices. This is how you've told us to do it. And so, Lord, we're doing it. Well, here's his question. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? This Isaiah 1.11 saith the Lord, I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the, the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. Well, who told him to add incense? Was this some sort of a strange fire? Was this something that God had not prescribed that all of a sudden the people decided to bring on their own? No, incense was a part of it. This was informed. This is what God had asked for. But here he says, don't bring this this vain, these vain oblations, this incense is an abomination. That is, it is disgusting unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Now, that's a pretty, uh, pretty blunt passage there. And again, we misunderstand if we come away with that thinking, well, it's, it has everything to do with what they were doing and the way that they were trying to approach the Lord from an outward standpoint. And, and that's not true. They were just doing what God had called them to do. But they were doing it with hands that were full of blood. What does that mean? Well, the Lord's saying worship was never about the incense, primarily. It was never about the animal sacrifices. It was never about... Um, the, the outward form of what I've called you to do, and it, it's not even because he's, he's going to say it was all these are shadows. He's saying you are coming to me in the right way with the wrong heart, and it's disgusting to me. He even goes so far as to say, I hate it when you do this. I hate it. It's, it's an abomination. It's offensive. Now, think about it. These people were doing all this in the right place. The temple. They were doing it in the right way. Ceremonial sacrifice. And they were doing it by the right people, even wearing the right clothes. The priests. And God's response is, not only does he reject it, 
He hates it. Now, this is kind of a backdrop of God's assessment of Israel and the way Israel worshipped him, or at least the worship disorders that Israel had. Why was it that their hearts weren't tied to their worship of the Lord? Because their hearts were tied to their worship of something else. That's why. It wasn't that they ceased worshipping something. It was that they threw the first commandment out the window. And they had set up other gods. Now, if we think about this passage in light of this, and, and, and the reason I say that is because if we're not careful, we'll take, a, we'll take a passage like John 4, those who worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth, and we'll reduce it all the way down to, uh, if you come to God, believe in the doctrines of grace, you got it. If you're an Arminian, you still got some work to do. That's not even close. The problem is much bigger than that. Now, truth obviously matters, but some kind of a shift has to take place that's far bigger than trying to make a comparison like that. So, go back to John 4. John chapter 4. So in light of what's going on there in the Old Testament that leads us up to where we are, the Pharisees are really reproducing these kinds of um, uh, abominable worship scenarios. Jesus is engaging with this woman from Samaria. And she says in verse 19, I perceive that you're a prophet. And the question is, essentially, where should worship take place? Where should worship take place? You're a prophet. You know this about me. Surely you know where worship should take place. Now, I said this earlier, but there was an ancient dispute between Samaria and between the Jews on who was worshiping in the right location. The Samaritans uh, held to the first five books of Moses as Scripture. They took nothing, nothing more than that. Uh, they said, this is, this is what we count or this is what we hold as Scripture. The Jews' Bible was obviously bigger than that. Um, they were at or close to Mount Gerizim. This is the mountain that the woman says, should we worship in this mountain or should worship be at Jerusalem? Now, the reason that she's asking this question, the reason they would even think that Mount Gerizim might be the right place to worship um, is because in Genesis 12, 7 and in Genesis 33, 20, uh, both Abraham and Jacob set up altars in Shechem, which is either on or right beside Mount Gerizim. And the reason we can't pinpoint exactly is because names and local, you know names change. And so if you try to look at an Old Testament map, with New Testament names, you'll see it's very close. So it may be on, it may be by. But this is where Abraham and this is where Jacob set up their altars to worship the Lord. And if you're just, you know, if you're just looking in the first five books, you don't get anything about Jerusalem. And so this is what you have to go with. Another thing is that in the Samaritan's Bible, 
In their set of, of, of scriptures, they changed the name in Deuteronomy 27.4 uh, from Mount Ebal to Mount Gerizim. And so the Samaritans had built a temple on Mount Gerizim and this is where they worshipped. They said this is where we're supposed to. This is where our forefathers worshipped. This is where the Lord met them. It's where the Lord blessed them. And then the Jews said, wait a second. It's not Mount Gerizim, it's Jerusalem. You could go to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5, and, and God expressly says He will choose a place to dwell with His people. 2 Samuel 7, 2 and 3, David comes to Nathaniel and says he wants to build a house for the Lord. Now, you'll, you'll, you'll remember the place in the Old Testament, particularly the place in the first five books where worship was going to take place would be the tabernacle. And, and, then, and then the question is, where was the tabernacle located? Wherever the people were, right? They were nomads. So whenever it was time for them to move, they would just pick up the tent and go. And then they would set the tabernacle down and it was mobile. But then you get to 2 Samuel 7. David comes to Nathaniel and says, here I am dwelling in this uh, house made with cedar and the Lord is... Is is in this in this tent? I want to make him a I want to make him a, a house, this permanent dwelling. And then the text says that the Lord was in that. Now we know that the Lord wasn't in it from the standpoint that David got to build it, but the Lord was in choosing the place where his temple would be, where his house would be, and that was in Jerusalem. One of the reasons that we know that is because in First Kings chapter eight. 10 through 11, the glory of the Lord filled that temple the same way it did the tabernacle before in a visible way. And the Lord's presence dwelt in the temple like it dwelt nowhere else. Okay. So the question that this woman has for Jesus, I'm a Samaritan and we say Mount Gerizim because that's where Abraham and Jacob built their altars. You're a Jew, you guys say it's Jerusalem. Which one is it? Which, is, which holy site, as it were, does God want you to worship Him from? Where does true worship take place? Gerizim or Jerusalem? And Jesus' answer in verses 21 and 22 is neither. You, you, you fundamentally have a misunderstanding here. You, you, now, He's going to give a little bit more of an answer to that, but here it is, verse 21. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not. Uh, you know not what? We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. So he says, The hour's coming where it's neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but just to answer your question, the Jews are right, Samaritans are wrong. Okay. Revelation from God said that Jerusalem was the place, but Jesus says location, this, this question is a question that, that misses the point. Then we get to the real meat of the passage where we're going to see the kind of worship that God desires. So verse 24, uh, I'm sorry, verse 23, but the hour cometh, and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. 
God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, notice something for, for just a second. The hour comes and now is when the true worshipers, there's a distinction being made. Those who are truly worshiping over against those who are not. They're worshiping in spirit and in truth. Why? Because God is a spirit. And if you come to God, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. So worshiping in spirit. What are we talking about? What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about worshiping in spirit. Well, when we get to the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 22, a lawyer comes up to Jesus and he asks him the question, which is the greatest? Which is the chief, the first among all the commandments? And you, you already know where I'm going. Jesus goes back to Deuteronomy 6. And he says, this is the chief commandment. This is the most important. This is the highest ranking command. That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus reaffirms here that it's a sincere love to God from the heart that is the priority in worship. Now, at this point, we're not even thinking about information. Because like we said before, you can have the form without the heart and it's disgusting to God. So now the question is, how is it that people who have hearts that Genesis 6 says is continually wicked. How is it that people who have hearts, we sing the hymn, that are prone to wander, how is it that a people like that could love the Lord their God with their heart? Worship is something that happens on the inside and expresses itself on the outside. But if the inside's not there, it's just going through the motion. So the question is, how in the world do you give God the kind of worship that God desires? And we could even say that God requires. Well, look in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel is, is prophesying here. We, we went here with Nicodemus. It's not an unfamiliar passage. He's prophesying here about what the Lord will do. And in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, he says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers, and ye shall be my people and I will be your God. Now he jumps down. I'm going to jump down to verse 31. He says, Then shall you remember your own evil ways 
and your doings that were not good, and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Not for your sakes do I this, saith the Lord God. Be it known unto you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. And we know um, from earlier in the passage, it's not for Israel's sake that God does it. It's for the sake of His own name. So what, what has to happen here? Well, we said in the first part of John chapter 3 with Nicodemus that unless a man is born again, he can't see the kingdom. He needs eyes to see. Unless a man is born again, he can't enter into the kingdom. He needs life so that he can enter in. And what Jesus is going to say to this woman, this woman who has lived her life chasing after broken cisterns, is that if you want to know what needs to happen for you to bring the kind of worship to God that pleases Him, you need a whole new heart. You need a whole new heart. You must worship God in spirit and in truth. So what does that mean? Well, it means that you need to be regenerated. That's what that means. It means that outside of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, you cannot bring God worship that's acceptable to Him. It's this new heart that Ezekiel prophesies about in Ezekiel 36 that God's interested in. It's not a heart of stone, but it's a heart of flesh that can be pricked. It's the heart of flesh that in verse 31, where you will remember your evil ways and you'll, there'll be conviction there and you'll loathe and grieve over the sin, the idolatry that was there. And so when we think about the heart of worship, really the heart of worship really is worship of the heart. We talk about this a decent amount in the Psalms. We go to Proverbs 4.23 a lot. Guard your heart diligently because out of it flow the issues of life. The truth is, and this is the truth that we're getting at with a spirit and truth kind of worship, a person cannot and will not worship God from the heart until they're given a new heart from the Holy Spirit of God. Fundamentally, that's where it starts. Jesus says to this woman, is it in this mountain or in this mountain? And essentially, he says, you can take the wrong heart to the right mountain and worship still isn't happening. Your problem is not you don't have the right address. Your problem is you don't have the right heart. And so to, to worship the Lord in spirit means that we worship God as we are indwelt by His Spirit, but it doesn't just stop there because we have to understand what's happening when we're indwelt by the Spirit of God. The Spirit is your inner man. The heart is your inner man. So it's not just another one of those theological checklists where we say, okay, regeneration, we're done. But regeneration is, is a... Uh, is a, as a means to an end. 
Okay, so when the Holy Spirit of God comes down and dwells in you and takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh, all of a sudden you have a heart for the Lord. You, you begin to grow convicted over the things that grieve God. You grow in your knowledge of what the Lord has done for you. And it's not just that I have to go and worship God. It's that I want to go and worship the Lord. It's that I want to be here. I have to be here. I need to be here. And when I'm here, I'm not just marking time. I'm here because I'm engaged in the service. I want to know Him and I want to love Him more. It's a new appetite. It's a new desire. It breaks away from all the form. And by that, I don't mean it throws form out the window. I mean, it's not resting on form alone. There's something real going on. Something real that wasn't happening before. You see, the truth is, we have gathered here to worship. But just by way of reality, some of you are worshiping, and some of you are not. Some of you have the ability to worship in, a, in an acceptable way, and some of you just don't. Now, the way that manifests itself is not by someone sitting here thinking, well, I wish I could worship the Lord, but I just can't. The way it manifests itself is, what time is lunch, and what is he talking about? I wish this would end why can't we have those 10 to 15 minute sermonettes I get more out of the singing it's just a disinterest with God tell me about the love don't tell me about anything else bring me the comfort don't bring me anything else now those who have been given a heart to worship the Lord are not burdened by entering into the worship service. They love it. Worship in spirit. The contrast is worshiping in form. Secondly, worshiping in truth. Worshiping in truth. Now, again, we have to remember when we're thinking about this, We're talking about worship, and worship always takes place in the heart. So worshiping in truth does not simply mean, it cannot simply mean, that you just nod your head when true Bible facts are spoken. It doesn't mean that. Worshiping in truth means that you've received the spirit of truth, and that the Lord has done what David has prayed for Turn to Psalm 51. You know this passage. Psalm 51. As David is praying this prayer of repentance. Psalm 51 verse 6. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. 
Lord, you desire truth to permeate all the way through, all the way down to the depths of my soul. You desire truth to permeate my heart, that it wouldn't just be, again, information that I'm nodding my head to. It would be information that brings about transformation in my life because it's something that's part of me now. It's not just some cold, hard fact. Where does this come from? Well, it comes from the Spirit of God. Look in John 14. It's worth noting how Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit several times here. Now again, we're talking about the starting point. The starting point. In John chapter 14, verse 15, says, If you love Me, keep My commandments, and I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another Comforter that He may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth Him not, neither knoweth Him, but you know Him, for He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Now this is just another way of us talking about being given eyes to see. Okay, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth that comes and applies truth to your heart and to your mind, not just so you'll shake your head, but you know, those of you who have come to know the Lord, you know the difference between knowing an abstract truth of, of, of laying hold of truth and truth laying hold of you. You know the difference. Those who come to God and, and, and come to God and worship Him, they must come in spirit, that is sincerity, through the Holy Spirit of God who regenerates a dead heart. And they must come in truth. And we're going to talk about the primary substance of that truth in just a second. But look in John 15. We see it, see Jesus referring to the Spirit this way again. John 15, verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, who I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, He shall testify of Me. He shall testify of Me. John 16, verse 12. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit when the Spirit of truth is come, He will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Now, we can unpack this to mean more, but it certainly doesn't mean any less. Maybe we'll spend next Sunday unpacking it more. But when Jesus tells this Samaritan woman that the hour is come when those who worship God must worship God in spirit and in truth, Jesus is telling this woman that the only kind of worship that God receives is the kind that comes from an individual whose heart has been made alive through the Holy Spirit of God and whose truth has penetrated that heart so that they begin to walk in truth. And now the question has to be, 
you know, you look at the you look at the passage, and the woman leaves her water pot. Okay, she went at noon to get water. She leaves her water pot. She runs back into the city. And she starts to uh, essentially evangelize. She begins to tell these people about the man that she met. I think it's safe to say this woman became a true worshiper of the Lord that day. And the question is, what truth did she embrace? Now, one thing you'll notice, I think you might make a case for this, maybe not. When Jesus tells the lady, um, you don't know what you're worshiping. The Jews do, so the Jews are right. But the hour comes when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father seeks such to worship Him. God's a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And then, verse 25, the woman said unto Him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When He is come, He will tell us all things. You know what that means? It means the woman says, maybe you're right, maybe you're not. Who knows? But one day the Messiah will come and He'll set all this straight. And Jesus says, lady, the Messiah is standing right here in front of you. It's me. And then what happens? Something changes. Something changes. And she runs into the city. And she begins to testify about this man who told her everything that she ever did Verse 29, is not this the Christ? What does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? Well, you remember what Jesus has said about himself, or he hasn't said it yet, but he's going to say it in John 14, 6. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Who is the truth? The truth is Jesus Christ. What is the truth that this woman embraced at this point? It's that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's the one who will set all things right. He's the one who will save God's people. What is it? Primarily, how is it that we know the spirit of truth has worked in the heart of an individual? Jesus tells us, I'm going to send the comforter, I'm going to send the spirit of truth, and when he comes, he will testify of who? Jesus. Right? Now, don't think that what I'm doing here is trying to water everything down into nothing. Because that's not what's happening. But you also shouldn't think that somehow Jesus is just a little speed bump before you get to the good stuff. That's not it. Anyone who comes to God and worships Him in an acceptable way must come to the Father through Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us, you can turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 
verse 6, for God, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How do you know when someone's been brought to the truth? How do you know when someone has become a true worshiper of the Father? Well, it's because they're coming to Him through Christ. That's how you know. Now, the prayer is, and the hope is, is that as this individual continues to grow in grace and in knowledge of the truth, that they grow in filling in the details of all of that. But brothers and sisters, our ability to bring acceptable worship to God is not contingent on the score we get on some kind of a Bible quiz. It's contingent on what you do with the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm coming to the Father through Christ because I've been given eyes to see. Eyes to see what? Eyes to see that before that, before Him, all I could do was just go through the form. All I could do was just show up. All I could do is just offer up heartless worship, but I've been made to know Him. I've been made to know my sin. The Spirit has made me grieve over my sin, and now I come to God through Christ. And my hope is built on Him and nothing else. This is what the New Testament would spend its time unpacking and Again, there is maturity to be grown in. There's more to be said. There's more to be known. From a foundational standpoint, this is it. Look in Ephesians 2.18, whenever Paul would talk about Jew and Gentile being quickened together. They're made one body. They're brought to the Lord in the same way. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, For through Him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Through whom? Through Christ. What Jesus is saying to the Jews who were putting all their hopes in the fact that Jerusalem is where you ought to go, and, and it's the temple worship, and it's all the sacrificial stuff that the ceremonial law says that's not it. But to the Gentile, he says, you don't have to go through the, the old covenant to get to the new. Both Jew and Gentile both come to God in one way. And how is that? Through Christ. It's through the Messiah. It's through the one who would give himself, sacrifice himself for the sins of his people, and then who would send the spirit of truth, who would bring dead sinners to life, who would give blind sinners eyes, who would give hardened sinners a heart of flesh, who would make His people willing in the day of His power so that they come to worship not as a chore, they come to worship not as a dry duty, they come to worship and they count it, as Brother Hugh mentioned in his prayer, a blessing to be able to come to the house of God, to be able to sing His praises, and a blessing to be able to receive the truth of God How is it that worshipers will come to the Father? 
Well, it's through Christ. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 19 would say, do you not know that your body is the what? The temple? Of the Holy Spirit, the, 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 the temple of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Well, that's worship language. Your body's a temple. What do you do at the temple? You bring forth sacrifices. Worship happens there. How is it that your body could be the temple? Only one way. Because the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of truth, dwells in you. First Peter chapter two. Again, we may come back next Sunday and flesh some of this stuff out a little more. First Peter chapter two. Verse five. For ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Christ Jesus. Here he's talking about believers and he says you're spiritual stones, you're a holy priesthood, you're offering up these spiritual sacrifices to God by Christ Jesus. And so when you think about worshiping God in spirit and in truth, the emphasis here is first on the individual heart, not the corporate activity. So, well, what about the church? What about the church? Well, unless you have living stones, you do not have a living house. Okay? The church is made up of living stones. So it would do no good. It would be a replica of the Old Testament temple, just a different form for us to gather a bunch of people who were not regenerate, who did not have hearts that loved God, that desired to worship God. And we got a big crowd together and we said, look how many people we gathered up. And we sing and we preach. And unless something has happened in the hearts of those individuals, the only thing we've done is offered up a disgusting offering to the Lord. So he says, as spiritual stones, those who have been indwelt by the Spirit, those who have been given a heart to love and, and honor the Lord, a holy priesthood, no longer do you go through the form. Okay? You don't bring your offering to me. You don't bring your offering to anybody else. These offerings go straight from you to God through Christ. We are offering up these spiritual sacrifices. Now, it goes along with what's come before and what will come after as far as John continuing to strike the same blow again and again and again. And that is, I've written these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that in Him you might have eternal life. You might even think about John 1.16. For of His fullness have we received grace for grace. 
What does it mean to be a true worshiper of God? It means that you've received of the fullness of Christ, the spirit of God, that you might be able to enter into acceptable worship out of a heart that loves him. Not a heart that's just merely going through the motions. And so worship in spirit and in truth occurs only as we treasure Christ in our hearts and we turn from our idols to the living God. Now, when that happens, then you have all the ingredients necessary to grow in points of truth. You have all the ingredients necessary to embrace what Scripture has to say and to affirm it and to live off of it. But until that happens, it's just empty form. It's just an activity that your heart will eventually grow bored with and you'll go after something else. And so Jesus says to this woman, it's not about the location. The location of true worship is not in this mountain or that mountain. The location of true worship is in the heart. And it's the heart that's been made alive by the Spirit of God. And so may God bless us with understanding and may God bless us with hearts that come again and again and again to offer Him worship in sincerity and in truth. Let's pray. Father, um, we, we think about realities like this and we are, if we have any self-awareness, Lord, we're, we're brought face to face with just how comfortable we can be with form. Just telling us what to do. Tell us what to do and we'll do it. And yet, Father, while form isn't to be thrown out the window, that's not where true worship occurs. It's in the heart. And so we have to come to You humbly and confess how prone our hearts are to wander even after they've been made alive. We have to confess how helpless we are to change the condition of our hearts before You've met us and before You've worked in us. And so, Father, we would be a place of worship here. And so we do pray for those who have not yet been given a heart to know You, to love You through the regenerating power of the Spirit. We pray You would work. And Father, we would pray for those of us who have come to know You, that You would bless us to continue to walk in the Spirit, that You would bless us to grow in grace and in knowledge of the truth, that You would bless us to hold to the profession of Christ, that we might come and offer up heartfelt expressions of worship, that You might be pleased. In Jesus' name, Amen.